Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Flying an airplane is simply hours and hours of boredom, sprinkled with a few seconds of sheer terror. Gregory Pappy Boyington, United States Marine Corps. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and a reminder, we love when you interact with the show on Twitter. We're at Wyoming Podcast. Follow us there. I'll get better about tweeting there, I promise. And you can also email me directly, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, a very important thanks to our Patreon supporters, without whom the show would not be possible. For early access to every episode and to help in our production, you can support our storytelling here on Dead and Gone in Wyoming for $10 a month at patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wyoming podcast. Thank you all for allowing me the chance to tell these amazing stories from one of my favorite places. Coming up on this month's episode, how can something so massive seem to disappear so entirely and for years the ghost was searched for in the highest parts of the equality state and when she finally revealed herself from beneath the rocky mountain snowfield we finally learned some of what had happened to her that night but some of her mysteries will remain so forever as any good mystery should Into a world on fire, the massive machine took to the sky. A crew of ten, gunners, navigators, engineers, and pilots, guided the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress and its more than 25 loaded tons into the dark night. From Oregon, their destination on June 28, 1943, was Grand Island, Nebraska. And from there, the war. The bomber, serial number 42-3399, would very soon become a part of the 383rd Bombing Group and continue on to England to participate in the ongoing World War II bombing campaigns. The four-hour flight at 15,000 feet was entirely routine. Save one thing. The men on board weren't supposed to be on it. Not that flight, anyway. 
Nor was the plane still supposed to have been on the ground before it eventually lifted off at 8.52 p.m. The rest of its squadron had departed hours before, but the crew for that flight, in a twist of history and fate, had been benched as some had fallen ill. So it fell to pilot William R. Ronigan, co-pilot Anthony J. Talata, navigator Leonard H. Phillips and seven other men, to reach for a fateful short straw. They were all to become casualties of the war. And as they took to the sky, as young men and teenagers, none could have an inkling of what their own place in Wyoming lore would shortly be. Growing up in Buffalo, Wyoming, Scott Madsen was aware of the legend of Bomber Mountain. Of course, everyone was. In high school, he chose to write about it for a paper. A small decision that changed his life forever. Scott took it one step beyond that school paper. He added a little to the original writing and printed off copies to sell. At first, it was only a few dozen, and when those sold, he printed a few hundred more. That pamphlet that was produced by the 18-year-old about the local legend of a World War II bomber that was still resting at 12,000 feet in the Wyoming Rockies drew so much local interest that Scott decided to make it a full-on project. He made his first of what would eventually be several trips to the site. He contacted the government in search of official records and documents about the crash. And, at a time when it was far more difficult to do than it is now, he began to try to track down any relatives of those ten men who had died on the mountain. This became a book, written and self-published by a very ambitious Buffalo high schooler. The Bomber Mountain Crash, a Wyoming mystery. It wasn't really planned, I guess. It's one of those things that just kind of uh, happened. I didn't really expect. It wasn't on my bucket list when I was in high school. I didn't plan on it originally, but it worked out. And since I wrote the book, I've been up to the crash site three or four times and taken loads of pictures. And I've got I've got quite a few, probably a thousand pictures or more now. I could probably update the pictures on there with some more current stuff. So I could probably expand the book and add some more information to it as well so it would make it a little more interesting to read and the people that have the old copy might want to buy the new one. Of course, it is with reluctance that I turn my favorite part of this podcast, the storytelling, over to anyone else. But we must make an exception in this case. I know well enough to know when it's time for me to sit down with you and listen to a story. Scott Madsen might well be the foremost expert anywhere on the flight of the B-17 Flying Fortress that crashed into the top of a then-unnamed Wyoming mountain in the Bighorns more than 75 years ago now. The crew had just finished training. It was in a group of, I believe, six or eight bombers were all together, and they'd left from Pendleton Field, Oregon. But at the time, one of the crew members on this flight was sick, so they ended up with a replacement crew member, and because of that, this plane was an hour or so behind the rest of the group. They were flying from Pennington Field and headed to Grand Island, Nebraska, and somehow it, it was overnight hours when it was flying through this area. It was a brand-new plane, and it was pretty dark night, and I guess from near as we can tell, they were off course or didn't know where they were flying. Initial reports from the Department of Defense, the last position reports that were received, there were a couple of them, and one was almost down to Casper, another one was a 
little bit between KC and Casper, quite a bit farther south. They thought they were actually flying below the Bighorn Mountains and not through the Bighorn Mountains. My theory on what might have happened is as a new plane, it either a fresh crew, new crew, might they might not have set the instruments correctly or might have had a malfunctioning compass or something, and they basically didn't realize they were as far north in the middle of the mountains as they were. If they were bending south, they would have flown right over the lower hills and not even had a problem. The fatal flaw in the flights and the ensuing unsuccessful search effort was simple. The crew didn't know where they were. The last couple position reports were down in 80 to 100 miles south of the actual crash site. And as part of that, it crashed in 43, wasn't found until August of 45. And while it was missing, the Department of Defense did a search over in uh, the Wind River Mountains because they thought that they might have been flying that way. They weren't exactly sure where, where it was flying. If, by chance, if the guy wouldn't have got sick, the crew member, and they would have flown in formation with the other plane, they would have been right next to each other, and they would have had a visual confirmation of where they were and would have been able to keep on track that way. But this way, they just didn't know. As you might imagine, the Army didn't make a huge deal about the fact that one of its planes had crashed, for one thing, and another, that it didn't even know where it had gone down. There were initial media reports indicating the plane might have gone missing close to its departure location on the West Coast. But it's hard to know now how much of the reported information then was accurate from the military, and also, of course, how much more Army officials knew about the situation that they weren't making public then. One way or another, though, the Army was in the dark. They didn't know where the plane was. They didn't know where the 10 crew were. They ran two or three search missions in different areas of Wyoming, but they never got to within 50 miles of where the wreckage actually was. So, near the tip of the spine of the Bighorn Range, the bomber and her crew rested, mostly in the snow, for more than two years. The reason it was found was in, it was in August of 1945 when it was spotted. It was up on the top of the mountain. It was right south of the highest peak in the Bighorn Mountains there, so it was up real high. The F model, which was still painted green, the whole plane had been painted. Within a couple years, the tail section or something had the paint had worn off enough that it actually glistened in the sun. And as the story goes, there were two sheep herders on the west side of the Bighorns out in the flatland, probably a mile, mile and a half away by the crow flies from the crash site. We were looking up on the mountain one day and saw something shining in the sunshine. And they, they saw it a couple times and eventually hiked up there and located the wreckage. And they came down to the Tyrell Ranger Station on the west side of the Bighorns and told the story to the Park Forest Service Ranger there, who then contacted the authorities and the Department of Defense and the Army. And then it was the, they ended up bringing a party from Rapid City Army Air Base, which is now Pendleton, or Ellsworth uh, in Rapid, and then the Casper Base sent a crew up there, and they were able to get up there and recover the bodies from the crash site. Because the crew of 10 had crashed at such a high altitude, where maximum daytime temperatures, even in the summertime, are rarely much above freezing, the bodies of the soldiers had been preserved 
along with some of their gear and possessions and other parts of the plane that might have otherwise been lost to time. And the recovery efforts revealed a disturbing possibility that at least one of the crew may have survived the crash. That was according to one of the people that was up there, and he was actually, I believe, a teenager at the time. He went up, his dad and uncle and cousin went up with the army and brought in pack horses to help pack the bodies out and stuff. So he was actually up there when they recovered the bodies. And what his story is, which I haven't been able to confirm, is that there was somebody was setting up with their back against a rock and we had the wallet out or something and looked like they might have survived, which is possible because the way it looks, it looks like as they were flying, it looks like they noticed the mountain was coming at the last minute and tried to pull up, and they ended up hitting the tail section first below the ridge. The nose itself and the captain's chairs and that part nosed in right at the top of the ridge, and then the main fuselage part of the bomber flew over the ridge and went down the other side a little bit. The center part of the airplane is not fully intact, but it's in some pretty big pieces there where somebody could possibly have survived that if they were in the middle of the wreckage. Flying at an elevation of just shy of 13,000 feet, the crew, who were assuming they were flying much further south than they were, still may have had an opportunity to avoid hitting the mountain, provided they saw it in time, and they were almost successful. Yeah, it was probably, from my estimation, it was a within a hundred so feet they missed it by. You can even today, this many years later, you can still see the scratches on the rocks where the tail section impacted the rocks. It it scratched the granite boulders and a couple places you can see where the 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 horizontal stabilizer on the tail. You can see where it's just accordion together where it hit hard. I went up there after high school with one of my science teacher. He took a few of us up there as, just as a senior trip, and he showed his uh, picture of the control surface, the control cables, and the throttle mechanism to one of his friends that was knew quite a bit about aircraft. And it, it said it looked like the throttles were in full power. Three of them were full power, and one was feathered. And it looks like one engine might have been down, and the blade had been feathered. So. That is another option, too, that they might not have had enough power to clear that when they were saw, but it looked like they were trying to get over. And by the time they saw it in the distance, it was uh, they tried to pull up at the last second, but just those were pretty big machines, and yeah, they had a lot of power, but not quite enough. When it came time some 40 years after the fact for Scott to attempt to contact the airman's family members, and he was successful with several of them, he knew he likely wouldn't be looking for immediate family. The average age of American servicemen during World War II was 26, and those were more likely to be your officers. Under their command were essentially kids in their teens sent off to combat. The officers were in their 20s, early 20s, and some of them were were late teens. They weren't much older than I was when I started researching this. It was... That was kind of shocking. I think the oldest person was maybe late 20s. They were all pretty young, and which was common at that day and age. They they were training crews so fast. Yeah, it was, and a lot of them were the younger people that were there that were flying these planes. So 
and there was one well one family of uh Anthony Davis came up here. Well, actually I've met a couple different families have been passed through here. Have just happened to to had heard about it, found them and then there was nephews or some other family members ended up showing up here just to come see that they did get, never did get the wrecking, but they're able to talk to me and get some information about what happened to their family member. And the interesting part of that, one of the families found me. Would have been a brother to one of the crew members actually had a daughter living in Billings, Montana, and somehow they were coming from, I believe, Florida or somewhere down south up to see their daughter and happened to stop into a bookstore somewhere and saw saw something about this and ended up getting a copy because they were interested in reading and said, oh, wait, I know that person. <laughs> and they eventually contacted me and it was, we're on the interstate, yeah, and they were traveling the main interstates, but yeah, how they found me, I don't know. Did they tell you anything about their family member or share any stories? Well, not that much because these were all generation later. A lot of the ones that showed up were nieces, nephews, cousins or something that there weren't many of the of the original family members. Crew members would have been in their mid to late 60s or early 70s at the time. So normally the family members were younger members, nephews or something, or nieces of the crew members. They never knew the person. They just knew stories of what they heard from their family members. And one of the other surprising things, one of the families was in Oklahoma was that many years later, they were still living at the same address from the from the original Department of Defense records, because that was how I started with it. With the original records, I got got the next of kin records, so I sent letters, <laughs> letters to everybody, and and one of them got returned from this family because they were still living in the same spot, and they'd received the letter. <laughs> it was kind of surprising. Bomber Mountain, as it's now called, is one of the taller peaks in the entirety of the Bighorns. It's within National Forest and is accessible. Much of the wreckage still remains untouched on the side of the mountain. But Scott warns that it's not exactly a simple day hike to reach. One time uh, we got um, knocked off. We were up there mid-afternoon with a big group backpack trip, but it started thundering and lightning on, on us halfway up the mountain, so we had to turn around and come back down. We weren't able to go up and stay on top. The last time I was up there was, I believe, four or five years ago, and that time we tried to go up in mid-August and got snowed on. <laughs> we stayed overnight and woke up to six inches of snow, so we waited and went in mid-September, and that was one of the nicest days I've ever been up there. We showed up on, rode some bars, some horseback, went, friend was a, worked for an outfitter, we had some horses we rode in as far as we could, tied them up, and then hiked the rest of the way to the top and stayed. We stayed five or six hours on top of the mountain, and we didn't get back down until dark to the horses, and luckily the horses worked well enough. They they found the way out in the dark. We just had headlamps. They knew the way back to home, so good pictures there and good GPS readings of all the wreckage, so I kind of helped recreate the crash, and when I was able to, through my years of research and seeing other B-17s in person, and I've been able to kind of identify what some of the pieces of wreckage are and talk to some other people have identified some other stuff for me so I could kind of piece it together and see how it hit and what was what and where these pieces ended up and 
So that that's been kind of fun, and it it's one of those. Yeah, I've been doing it for a long time now, but it's still it's still fun to to go back and think about it and try to figure out how it happened because it's still a mystery, it's, and it always will be. Because yeah, since no one survived, there's nobody that can give us a eyewitness report of what actually happened on the crash. And it's true; we'll never know for sure. And as with any mystery worth telling, some say there's more to this story. Well, there's always all sorts of rumors and stuff talking to the people that were up there and around there and the rumors flying around the area after it was found. And one rumor was that it might have had some money on it or be a pay plane or something or carrying some type of cargo. But odds are as a new plane, it probably wasn't carrying that. But I guess the biggest question I have is what really caused it to crash? Was it because it was a new plane? Was it? Was there instrument malfunction? Was there was it human error? Was it yeah pilot error? Was it mechanical error? Was there did they just totally drift off course or what? That's something we'll never know. And then the biggest question I, that I still don't know is yeah did anybody survive? Because part of that was it's so high and remote up there that even two years later when they did recover the bodies they still weighed. 70 to 100 pounds. Basically, the body has been frozen most of the year. Scott's research revealed something amazing. In the midst of the war, well over 1,000 U.S. military aircraft crashes were reported within the United States in the year 1943 alone. But that's everything from sliding off the runway uh, major crashes, and yeah, they, they didn't break it down for major or minor, but there was thousands and tens of thousands of aircraft being built and flown every day. It wasn't that uncommon. There there was another crash down southern part of the state somewhere of a, of a different military plane that I'd uncovered in my research. There have been several around the area. There was another B-17 crash down in Florida that somebody else down there wrote a book about that they found it in a swamp and he found my book and we ended up trading books in one of each <laughs> of our books to each other and that was kind of interesting just to read about a different crash site. Atop Bomber Mountain there are two memorials to the crew itself. An older simple cross to mark the location still remains and later a formal plaque was commemorated at the site. There are other memorials as well a photograph of a young man who was also fascinated by the story, but who sadly passed away before he ever had the chance to make the trek. For those who are so motivated, the ascent to the top of the Big Horns, where history has remained frozen for the better part of a century now, will reveal amazing high country views. And when the sun is just right, the glimmering remains of a time long past will still be there to greet you. Though it's illegal to remove any of the crash, locals have picked and chosen mementos to haul back home over the years. What remains now are the larger remnants of violently shredded metal and the memory of the ends of an America in black and white. If you ever find yourself atop Bomber Mountain, please send a photo. And as one mystery has a way of leading to another, I couldn't help but ask Scott, with such a depth of knowledge about local lore, what else was of myth and mystery in his corner of the state? There's all sorts of mysteries around here. And one of the other mysteries that I'd thought about writing about that I never did was 
the Lost Cabin Gold Mine up here. Supposedly, there was a gold mine up here in the Bighorns that some old old guys found and brought some gold down and told some a couple people. Well, he cashed it in and told some people that he found some, and he was planning on going back up the next year or something, but ended up, I think he passed away or something before he got back, and so supposedly there's one somewhere up there, and nobody's ever been able to find it. It sounds like a dead and gone in Wyoming summer camping trip might be in order. My thanks to Scott Madsen of Buffalo, Wyoming, for sharing his obsession with us as we move on to our next one. And thank you for listening. For County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.